The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each episode, we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues from the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. Joe Biden is approaching his first 100 days in office. So, how has he fared? And has he delivered on his promise to bring about a return to normalcy? Plus, the proposed European Super League wasn't super after all. The six English teams invited to join the league pulled out earlier this week, and the plans have now been shelved. But will it still happen eventually? And finally, what's it really like to live in a listed building? First up, Joe Biden will reach 100 days in office next week. In this week's cover piece, Freddie Gray, our US editor, says that the president's gaffes and misspeaks are getting him into trouble. To explain, I'm joined by Freddie and Kate Andrews, our economics editor, who writes about the spending spree that's dominated his first few months in charge. Freddie, in your cover piece this week, you write about Joe Biden's first 100 days in office. How do you think they've gone? On one level, I say it's been quite a big success. The vaccine rollout has gone very well. The stimulus package has been very well received. People like being sent money, uh, weirdly enough. But as far as I'm concerned, there's this strange geriatric wokeness going on uh, in the Biden presidency. And we saw it this week with his statement about the Derek Chauvin trial before the jury had reached a verdict. He decided to come out and say, I hope that the right verdict is made and I think the evidence is overwhelming. There was no need for him to do that. He was just trying to appeal to the Black Lives Matter activists who uh, increasingly dominate his party and its ideology. Kate, you're one of these people who's received from these checks, or a few checks, it sounds like. What, why is the president sending you money? I don't know why he's sending me money. So the stimulus check in America is almost supposed to be the UK's furlough scheme. Its intent was to be a lifeline to Americans, tens of millions of Americans that were losing their jobs essentially overnight last spring because they didn't have um, a job retention scheme to try to help keep people in employment. So, you know, I, I very much see the benefit of them for those who, who needed them and also, I suppose, in, in theory, for trying to get America's economy back on track. Although you could cer- certainly debate why you're printing so much money and spending so much money as the economy seems to be heating up on its own now. As to why I received them, I suppose it's because my social security number made me legitimate to do so. But I think it just puts into perspective how much money is sloshing around in America. And, you know, there could be some pretty big economic implications for this. People are starting to warn about inflation, uh, what this is going to do to an economy that's already heating up. It's very difficult to say, but I would say a year ago, nobody was talking about this. And now all of a sudden, you know, major top economists and even the chancellor in the UK is trying to make the finances Biden proof. I find it quite weird. I mean, if government was as simple, if economics was as simple as just keep giving everyone money, right. we'd have probably cracked it a while ago. <laughs> but but now everybody says, you know, if you say, oh, could this be dangerous? Constantly giving every person a check. 
you're sort of laughed at and you don't really understand modern economic theory and things like that. Well, the, the, the argument is that for the past 10 years, you know, pumping all this money into the, well, onto the books anyway, didn't cause the inflation you, you expect to see. Now, well, yes, because the last 10 years have been so stable <laughs> politically and economically. Well, well this is it, Freddie. And, you know, others would say, well, we did have inflation. It was in asset prices and home prices, but you're sure it wasn't exactly what we expected to see. But the argument goes, you know, if you're in a crisis, this is when you spend money. Uh, this is when you pump it in and then you're more restrained in the good times. But you make an excellent point, Freddie. We've had two crises in 12 years. And so it isn't that this happens, you know, every once in a while. Perhaps we should be expecting more and get our finances in order to handle it. Freddie, you've spent the last four years reporting on Trump. Do you think things feel a bit calmer now with Biden? Uh, That's certainly a bit more boring because even though Biden isn't boring, and I don't think his presidency is boring at all, he's kept under wraps much more effectively. He's not really allowed to talk uh, the way he wants, because he's famously unable to control his mouth, more so than Trump, I'd say. He just keeps rambling on and saying things he shouldn't say, much like I am now. <laughs> well, you say in your piece that he's only given one press conference. Is that sort of... Yes. And and this became a sort of... Everyone said, oh, no, that's just a right-wing talking point. But it was also just true uh, <laughs> that he was not giving proper press conferences. Uh, and he finally did one. And it went quite well. Like, he, he didn't mess up in any major way. But he did. he wasn't asked many hard questions. So you have this sort of strange Regency presidency where nobody really knows what's going on with Biden, whether he is compass mentis or not. <laughs> and he just seems to occasionally make these strange statements and everybody just sort of shrugs and says, that's Joe Biden. And we move on. But he is leader of the free world. And Kate, do you think we're going to see him pulled further to the left as, as the year goes on? I agree with Freddie's assessment that as we get closer to the midterms, he will actually move back to the centre. There is a great understanding, and it was infuriating to the far left in America, that Joe Biden won not just the nomination, but very likely the presidency because he was inoffensive to people who very often disagreed with him, but they didn't see him as this radical. And, uh, you know, the Democratic Party, the lesson they should be learning from the past few years is that they should be moving to the center if, if they want to compete with the Republican Party, which apart from the Oval Office actually did quite well on the ballot last November. It wasn't until Trump started telling people that your vote doesn't matter, it's all rigged, that it started to look like Georgia, as it did, was going to elect two Democratic senators. So the Democrats took the Senate. But they have the Senate by a razor thin margin here. There's a real chance come the midterms, the Republicans will take back some control. So Biden's trying to shove everything he wants to do in four years into two in case he loses that control. But no, I, I think we'll see more moderate stuff coming from him probably in the next year as we lead up to the midterms. Freddie, you say that to his admirers, Biden is finding a third way between the old centre and the new left. I mean, do you, is that plausible? He can do that? Yeah, there's a certain type of slightly ghastly left of centre columnist who loves saying things like Biden can, can he can govern as a radical because he campaigned as a moderate and they that everybody nods and says how brilliant that is. <laughs> what does that but mean it, well exactly I mean the point is nobody voted for Joe Biden because they thought he was going to introduce critical race theory in schools if they if they were that radically left they didn't want Joe Biden to begin with he's desperately trying to appease that growing faction of of the Democratic Party and I don't think he ever will appease them they're not satisfied with him uh, and he will have to pivot to the middle eventually because 
voters aren't really interested in that stuff on a, on a large scale. Freddie says in his piece, Kate, that it's almost like an abusive relationship where he, whatever he gives them, they're never going to be happy. Do you think, is that a fair assessment? Well, I think they were very downbeat when it became very clear that Joe Biden was going to win the nomination. And back then you saw some of the more radical members of Congress, I wouldn't say falling in line, but just going a bit quiet and, and getting on board because the alternative was Donald Trump. And the last thing they wanted to be accused of wasn't pivoting to a centrist, but pivoting in a way that could actually help Donald Trump win. Now that he's in office, I think Freddie's right. You know, there is major pushback on the president within his own party. But again, if we're going back to those American voters, what they told us in November and what I think they're very likely to tell us again in the midterms is that they are relatively in the center and they can go for a center-right candidate. They can go for a center-left candidate. And Joe Biden, being in, in politics now for how many decades? Four? Four or five? He knows this. You know, he's a well-versed politician. He knows what can win elections. He has now done it at the top level, something that not even Barack Obama, who he was VP to, thought he could do. He wanted Hillary Clinton to run in 2016, and we all know how that story went. So Joe Biden's proved a lot of his critics wrong, and I think one area you can really give him credit for is knowing how to sell an argument, and I'd expect to see that going into 2022. And Fred, sorry, we should just finish with a bit of foreign policy. What what have we learned about Biden's foreign policy in the last 100 days? Well, he is withdrawing from Afghanistan, which I think, Kate, you might disagree with me on, but I think that's the right thing to do. I don't think America's going to make any progress there, so they may as well accept the fact they've lost that war. As regards to China, everybody thought that Biden would be a sort of China patsy, or certainly the Trumpists made out that he would be. And he's been very keen to show that he isn't. He called Xi a thug. And with Putin, he called Putin a, a killer. So there's, I think there's a lot of sort of public tough guy talk. But actually, in terms of foreign policy, there hasn't been much great change from... I would say, the Trump policy of standing up to China a little bit. Mm. you agree with that, Kate? Yeah, broadly speaking, I, I think with hindsight, it's it's very clear all the mistakes that the US has made in the Middle East for the past 20 years. And I would love to see the troops pulled out completely. What I'm concerned about is America in many ways created this mess. And if it becomes very apparent in the weeks and months leading up to the withdrawal that it's going to result in mass bloodshed or you know so, some really horrific stuff, th- I think America, like it or, or hate it, has, has a moral obligation to try to mitigate that, given what we've done in the region for two decades now. So I think I'm, I'm with you in heart, Fred. But practically speaking, I, I, I just don't know if he's going to be able to do it. Colin Powell said, if you broke it, you have to fix it. If you is broke that, it, it's yours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, I and we that, did. I didn't agree with that because, I, I mean, it's not like Afghanistan was a very happy, stable country before America got involved. So, I mean, it was broken. They've just broken it a bit more. No, sure. But I just, I think it's very difficult for us now to pretend that we can wipe our hands of it and say, we're leaving. It's up to you now, given how involved we've been for 20 years. So I, w- I would love to see the withdrawal. But I think if the situation is looking increasingly unstable leading up to it, there's going to be huge pressure on Joe Biden, on America. It's also a bit cringe that they're doing it on September the 11th, tomorrow, it is 20 years. I'm not sure he made that decision. I mean, it is a PR, bit odd. Why yeah. do a withdrawal from all for a PR purposes? Yeah, and, and this is going to be a painful process, even if you think it's the right thing to do. And I think the PR around it is, yeah, slightly uncomfortable. Thank you, Kate and Freddie. Next, plans for a European Super League have been shelved after the six English sides asked to compete in the competition pulled out. In this week's magazine, our columnist Rod Little says the club's billionaire owners will get their way eventually. To discuss what happened, I'm joined by the journalist Damien Riley, who wrote about the proposals for our website this week, and the UK's first ever female football reporter and lifelong Tottenham Hotspurs fan, Julie Welch. 
Julie, in this week's magazine, Rod Little writes about these proposals for a European Super League, which now looks like it's not going to happen at all. What did you make of the original proposals? This is rather difficult to say because, I mean, I, if I mentioned it to my fellow fans, they'd probably disapprove massively, but actually I thought it was really exciting. I just thought, oh, Spurs can be in a top competition and I won't have to worry anymore about them getting into the Champions League because it won't matter. It will just, you know, they'll just be able to earn lots of money and buy all the best players. And it didn't happen. So I was a bit disappointed with that. And of course, you know, I discussed it with everybody and there was immense disapproval. So I thought, well, I'd better shut up. But I do think, just if I was going back into my 12-year-old self... I'd probably think it was rather a good idea, actually. You know, nice to try something new. Julie, Rod was a bit rude about Spurs. He, I mean, he said that Spurs didn't really even deserve a place in the league. What, what did you make of that? Oh, I think that's quite true. I mean, it was a bit like, the, you know, the, the, the sixth form of boys of a minor public school sort of way back kind of getting involved in a jape. You know, Spurs weren't one of the ringleaders. They were just the sort of unpopular boy that tagged on the end. But you could say that of a lot of clubs. I mean, Arsenal at the moment don't really deserve to be in it. The whole trouble is that I'm a septuagenarian football romantic, basically. And for me, I preferred football at the end of the 1960s and the early 70s when, you know, club chairmen were the local port butcher or ran the Aston Martin concession in the local town. So I've always hated corporate sport anyway, in general. And... I suppose, though, I've just sort of gone with the flow. I mean, I hated it. I hated it when um, the Premiership, which then became the Premier League, was started because I thought that is the end of football as I know it. And now I just think, well, you know, football at the moment is run by two quite corrupt organisations anyway, FIFA and UEFA. So why resent another load of people trying to... Well, it's, it's a turf war, basically. And... I think that shots have been fired and it's not ended there. Something else is going to happen. I mean, it would just become more and more of a leviathan football as we know it, which is why actually, in a way, it would have been lovely to have had something new. Damien, I mean, how do you... Do you think the clubs sort of just misjudged the whole thing? I mean, the fact that all the English clubs had to pull out yesterday and there was a huge backlash, did did they just get it really wrong? I I struggle with that too. So I imagine it's the... I mean... It must be very difficult for the American owners particularly. I can imagine them saying to their, like, the people who advise them, let me get this straight. The fans are all going mad because we're suggesting that the same teams should always play in this tournament. And yet it is the same teams who always play in this tournament. It's just formalising what is basically already the norm. So I think they're probably quite confused. I think they probably did misjudge it. Um, I should imagine most of them aren't that used to worrying about what the little guy thinks as it is. I think they probably didn't get to become multi-billionaires by worrying too much what other people think. I imagine, yes, they, they've been shocked by it, uh, by the backlash. And I think as soon as one club pulled out, they all had to pull out. And it was interesting that the clubs that did pull out are the clubs that need money the least. The owners of Abu Dhabi are worth trillions. Roman Abramovich's Chelsea, he's not exactly in it for the money either. Those two clubs are considerably richer than all of the other clubs put together. And so for them, it's more about PR, especially for Abu Dhabi. They're trying to build a brand that doesn't antagonise, you know, antagonise people. And so it's more important. The brand is more important probably than the football for them. Once they pulled out, it, it was game over.
But Julie, it seems as though it was a sort of PR disaster. I mean, do you think Spurs fans will forgive their owners for, for sort of even discussing this? I'm sure they would miss being unable to forgive their owners because a lot of the theme of Spurs Twitter is, you know, Enik, the owners of Spurs, Enik out. So, you know, if Enik were out, then what would they have to talk about? In fact, I admire what Daniel Levy, the uh, chairman of Spurs, has done in, in that he has produced a fantastically good stadium in what was a very run-down area. The whole infrastructure of Tottenham is improving. Tottenham as a place is improving. He's very good on land and property. I don't know that he has... Well, as Damien says, you know, I, I don't think people who have lots of money really do understand what we little people think. But, of course, they'll forgive Spurs because, you know, it's, we're Tottenham till I die, so to speak. How did Spurs get into it, do you think? Why were they included? Because uh, the owner of Spurs, Joe Lewis, is an American billionaire several times over. I mean, there was this sort of cluster of American owners of English football clubs. So we've got Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham Hotspur, all American-owned. And perhaps the American owners, as you say, just don't really quite understand about English feelings about football because, you know, the, the whole American NFL system is different. Rather good, in fact. I rather like, you know, some of the things they have in the NFL system, like the draft and stuff like that, which I would love to see over here. So, yeah, that's probably how they got into it. But people like that will misjudge or they won't think it matters. I remember the late Robert Maxwell, at the time he was chairman of Oxford United, uh, tried to combine Oxford United and Reading into one football club and call it Thames Valley. And he was obviously very taken aback by the tremendous protest that was aroused within the people. You know, he was doing it, he said, because he wanted all of us to enjoy, you know, the great new stadium and stuff like that. I mean, of course, basically, all you want is to make more money in those circumstances. Damien, Rod finishes his piece by saying that, you know, despite all the backlash, capitalism does work in sport and, and, has, and has raised the standard of sport and made it better, really. D- do you agree with that? Yeah, I guess it's unarguable. I mean, the more money, the, yeah, the, more, the better facilities and so on. But it's also the more money that, that goes... I mean, mo- most of the money goes into the players' pockets, in football particularly, and that money doesn't come out of thin air. It ends up being charged to the fans. So the reason the prices get ever, ever higher and that working-class people supposedly, or not just working-class people, middle-class people, are increasingly priced out of the game is because it's just this never-ending upward scale of rapid capitalism within football, um, within all, all sport, but football particularly in this case. And Julie, Rod then sort of concludes that whatever happens, the Super League idea will come back. Do you think, do you think we're going to see it return? Oh, yes. Uh, this is, it's a bit like the Crimean War. You know, it's going to go on for a long time. And concessions have been made already. I'm not quite sure what the next salvo will be, but um, you can bet it will come back because, you know, it's, it's, it is a turf war, basically. And I'm, I'm terribly interested. I'm absolutely riveted to see how it turns out, in fact. As long as there's still football and you can still manage to get to a stadium sometimes, that's really all that matters to me and, I suspect, a lot of football fans. And, yeah, prices have gone up. You know, it is more expensive to support football. But if you're younger, I mean, 
today's young supporter, people in you know in their in childhood and in their early teens, they think football's a television program anyway. I mean, the big fight is over TV rights and stuff like that, and so that was behind a lot of the objections from, let's say, well, the the TV companies who at present profit from football. That's where the next generation of football fans come from now, because, uh, you know, you don't get children, little kids in the, in the children's stand anymore and things like that. Damien and Julie, thank you very much for joining. Living in a listed home might sound like a luxury, but it comes with its pitfalls. Hamish Scott, who's living in his third listed building, writes about dealing with conservation officers in this week's magazine. He joins me now alongside Liz Fuller, a buildings at risk officer for Save Britain's Heritage. Hamish, in this week's magazine, you write about the perils of living in a listed home. Can you tell our listeners why you wanted to buy a listed house in the first place? Because I love old buildings. Both I and my wife have lived in a series of them. They are much more interesting than the run-of-the-mill buildings and uh, have a sort of dangerous appeal, really. And, and what's your house like at the moment? Tell us a bit about it. It's a 16th century, what's known as a yeoman's house, which is a kind of small farmhouse, I suppose. It's gone through all kinds of alterations over the centuries, so it's actually quite difficult to work out what was originally where and when but I think that adds to the interest. One of the points you make in your piece is about conservation officers and and the troubles you've had with them. Can can you tell us a little bit about that? Well I've had a number of dealings with conservation officers both here and in Scotland over the years. Some of them have been excellent, some of them a lot less so and the trouble is that they don't stay in post very long, on the whole, and when they move on, suddenly the entire policy for conservation can shift almost overnight. So you're absolutely dependent on an individual who may not be in post for a very long time. Liz, you are a Buildings at Risk Officer for Save Britain's Heritage. Can you tell us a bit about what you do, and, and is that sort of similar to a conservation officer role that Hamish is talking about? No, it is actually completely different. Save Britain's Heritage is a campaigning organisation and we campaign to prevent the demolition of uh, historic buildings and also to prevent their overdevelopment or prevent and intervene to prevent decay. So, but I do deal with conservation officers all around the country because my particular responsibility at Save is to maintain our buildings at risk register which is a register of about 1,400 buildings all around the country, including Scotland, actually, which are are not necessarily threatened by imminent demolition, but are standing empty and are therefore at risk of vandalism, of falling into decay, and through not having a use will probably face a very uncertain future. So in the process of compiling that register, and also in Save's day-to-day dealings in terms of its campaign work, we do have quite a lot of contact with conservation officers. And I do recognise some of what Hamish is talking about. And can you tell us, Liz, a little bit about how buildings become listed in the first place? Buildings are listed basically to recognise their historic or architectural significance. And it's a statutory provision which can be applied to buildings uh, and there are different categories of listing to recognise different uh, levels of importance. So grade one is the very top level and things like Ben and Palace and, and very important buildings like that, very, very special buildings will fall into that category. And then a lot of Victorian 
housing might fall into the grade two category. Uh, it's a little bit more common, but still very important in terms of telling the story of uh, our history and of architectural development of styles. Hamish, can you tell us what happens if you do make changes to a listed building without necessarily the approval of a conservation officer and perhaps they then get wind of it? Do you get in trouble for that? You are in very deep trouble indeed. And to give you some idea, the actual maximum penalty you can face for doing unauthorised work is up to two years in prison and an unlimited fine. That is one big stick to keep you in order as far as listed buildings are concerned and there are no carrots to compensate you for it. So what sorts of things can you do to a building, just more from a kind of upkeep point of view? Very little without a great deal of consultation. There's generally great resistance to any change at all to the appearance of the building, uh, certainly externally. And you really have to maintain it, not just looking as it was, but even using, wherever possible, the same methods of construction or repair as would have been used 400 years ago. Like if you have wattle and daub walls, they've got to be repaired with a wattle and dauber. They're not that easy to find in Yellow Pages, but they do exist. (laughs) The Yellow Pages themselves aren't very easy to find these days, are they? And Liz, do you think Hamish is right to say in his piece that homeowners' views and wishes often aren't really taken into account when it comes to how they actually want to live in these buildings? Well, I don't know if I would say that necessarily. I mean, I think it is very hard. There are a number of factors that have to be taken into account when you are applying for listed building consent, which is, as Hamish refers to, is what's required if you want to do anything to your building that's listed, if it's going to affect the character of it. And that's whether it's something outside or or indeed inside, because both inside and outside are covered by the listing and any features that are fixed to the walls. That's all covered by the listing. So whether or not you will get consent, and this is a broad statement and there's a lot more detail, as Hamish quite rightly says, broadly, it's whether or not there has to be an assessment made of the significance of the building, of the thing that you want to change, how you want to change it, what materials you're going to use. There may be also considerations with regard to whether you're in a conservation area or not, there may be guidelines that apply locally that would affect the appearance of buildings in a conservation area. And also there may be general guidelines in relation to the particular building that you are wanting to change in that particular area that will be particular to that local authority. There may also be national conventions recommended ways of doing things to particular types of buildings or particular elements of buildings. So there are quite a lot of layers it can feel like a very complicated thing to have to navigate. And so lots and lots of different considerations come into play. And so I think that's why people start to feel a little bit disempowered and not always getting the response that they expect uh, when they apply for consent. Hamish, despite all of this, you still love living in listed buildings. I mean, do you find a bit of joy in the kind of drama of of all of this? Uh, Not in the drama of getting permissions, no, not in the slightest. I love the house we've got. I'm very reluctant to leave it. If for any reason we did move on, I would absolutely not buy another listed building, which is a shame because there are a lot of listed buildings which are in like sort of abandoned puppies or in desperate need of a loving owner. And uh, we would not take one on. It's like taking on a mad mongrel, really. (laughs) And Liz, just finally, have you ever lived in a listed building? 
Yes, I, I currently live in a listed building and so do have experience of getting consents and obviously I work in conservation and so it is often a question of trying to find the right sources of information about what you can and can't do and also the right people to help you. That's the key thing. And there are an awful lot of brilliant people out there who can actually help and advise and help you to find the right solution. But I do think before I go, I do need to say that there there are a lot of things that could be changed. One of the major things, and it's a big thing that people are campaigning for at the moment in, in the heritage sector, is to remove VAT from work done to listed buildings. A whole 20% applies to work that needs to be done. And there is often, not always, but often a slightly higher cost to doing specialised works. It's, it's because they need to be a little bit more specialised than just, you know, slap anything on. You know, you need to have a think about what you're using. And so uh, until 2012, that sort of work was zero rated. And it's now obviously normal VAT rate, with the exception of certain things. And actually, I did just want to mention, I'm not an expert on this, but I think you only have to pay 5% on things which have to do with energy saving elements. So in relation to Hamish's windows, you might want to bear it, you might want to have a look into that. No good, I'm not allowed to do it. <laughs> well, if you were, whatever you decide to do, I mean, there, there are a number, of, clearly a number of options and it's not easy, that is not an easy question, but they, they might be eligible for being counted at 5% for VAT instead of 20%. But this change can make a huge difference and make life a whole lot easier for people who own historic buildings and it's a really important thing that that should be changed if you're going to just change one thing. Hamish we haven't actually talked about your windows quickly tell listeners about the trials and tribulations that you're experiencing. Uh, Well the one of the big drawbacks of this house is windows which they're not original by any means they were put in I would say just over a hundred years ago they're pretty ropely made and they let in drafts. They're obviously single glazed. Uh, they just don't fit properly. They've warped and done wrong. A neighbour of ours over the road who's lucky enough to live in an unlisted house, not that much later than this one, but nevertheless unlisted, has identical windows. I think they were probably put in as a job lot 100 years ago, uh, some visiting window salesman. And he was allowed to change them for exact visually equivalents, but double glazed. The only difference you can see is if you peer at the thickness of the frame, which I wanted to do using the same craftsman he'd used, and that has been turned down. I've got to have these ropey old windows. And all I'd be allowed to put in secondary glazing on the inside, which ruins the appearance of the room. Uh, but that's acceptable. That's the only, otherwise, I have to freeze. Or live in darkness with insulated blinds. <laughs> Those are the alternatives I've been given. Or put in leaded mullion windows, as they might have been 400 years ago, which would cost thousands and would be a pastiche. Liz and Hamish, thank you very much for joining. And that's everything this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up a copy of this week's magazine. We've got Lee Kane writing about Westminster's class ceiling, Katia Hoyer saying that Germany could be about to go green, and Matthew Paris explaining how to get a police record. And if you like the podcast, please do leave a review and rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. 